a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've reached verse 17 of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Romans. And Paul has reminded us, we've already looked at this, that God judges everyone according to what is in his or her heart, not according to external appearances. There is no partiality with God. We looked at that last time. God shows no partiality. He commands that we show no partiality. And we've learned that God has put within every human being a conscience, God has revealed some important things about himself in his creation so we can know God is real. We can know God exists. There's no excuse for not realizing that. 
He is, as he calls himself in the Old Testament, Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. He's definitely there. But on top of that, he's also given every one of us an innate sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. So we all have enough light to know that we are guilty before God. There's no excuse. But of course, God's also revealed even more about himself in his word. And in particular, what the Jews would refer to as his law. But we've learned that the fact that he revealed his law through Moses to the Jews does not give them special status with God. Remember, there is no partiality with God. Just because they have knowledge of God's law doesn't mean they're going to get special favor or special treatment from God. So God's going to elaborate on that right now through Paul's next words to the Romans. So I want us to read it. We'll read this whole passage uh, so we'll get all of it in context. And remember, this is God's word. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, I want us to go back and look at those first four and a half verses again. Let's read it one more time. Remember, this is God's word. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So there were Jewish people in the first century who took great pride in their Jewish heritage. They were the people that had the law that God himself gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
the true God of the universe, the creator, had chosen them to be his chosen people. They certainly did not worship a false god or some weird idol like a lot of other people around them did. And not only that, they had really studied the law. They knew it well. Their attitude was, we have the truth. We know who God is. We know what he wants. He's revealed it in his law. And we're willing to teach others the truth about him. We're willing to try to help the poor, blind, foolish, childish people all around us so they can know the truth about God too. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, shouldn't we have that attitude? Isn't that a good attitude? Shouldn't we be saying essentially, we have the truth. We know who God is. We know what he wants. We're willing to teach others the truth about him. We're willing to try to help the poor, blind, foolish, childish people around us so they can know the truth about God too. That sounds like a good attitude. Sounds noble. And of course we should. I mean, so far so good. But then he asked a question that should cause all of us to tremble. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's so important. I think a good prayer for every single Christian who is willing to share God's truth with others, and we better be willing to share it, hadn't we? <laughs> Hopefully that's all of us. But it's especially true for those of us who are teachers and preachers. We need to be praying something like this. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share your truth. It's a great honor. It's a privilege. I don't take it for granted. Please help me realize that I myself need to listen to what I'm sharing with others. Help me to pay attention to what I'm teaching. Help me to examine myself honestly in the light of your truth. And Lord, I know I have blind spots. Help me to see my blind spots. Maybe you could use my wife, or if you're a woman, my husband. <laughs> or maybe you could use my brothers and sisters in Christ to help me see my blind spots more clearly. I want to stay teachable. We need to be praying something like that. Listen, this can be really dangerous. Some preachers and teachers over time learn that they have a gift for communicating with other people. They learn they can make people laugh. They learn they can make people cry. They can work on people's emotions. They learn to use words to make people feel good. Some of them begin to figure out over a period of time they can make money that way. Some of them become greedy so they can preach confidently against stealing and against greed and against coveting. They know the Bible teaches those things are sin, but at the same time, they themselves are filled with it. They're using the gospel to enrich themselves and they're just rationalizing it away they're justifying it in their own mind. And the Bible is full of warnings about spiritual shepherds, so-called shepherds, who've learned to enrich themselves at the expense of the sheep they're supposed to be shepherding. <laughs> this is what God told Ezekiel in the Old Testament to say to those kind of shepherds. Son of men, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? A little later, God says this through his man Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds 
and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And then God used the prophet Micah. This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Micah wrote, inspired by God, its heads, and Micah's talking about the leaders in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's heads, Jerusalem's leaders, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Yeah, I'll teach. I'll teach God's word. I got to have some money. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Jesus warned his followers, beware of the scribes who like to walk about in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Listen to this, verse 47, who devour widows' houses. That means they're getting rich at the expense of very poor people. And for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And then near the end of this letter we're studying now, the book of Romans, Paul wrote this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're in it for the money. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Near the end of his life, the apostle Peter wrote these words, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, in their greed, they're in it for the money. They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Jesus said there would be false leaders. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, a hired hand. Some so-called shepherds are nothing but hired hands. They're in it for the money. And not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. God's men will not always be popular. God's men will speak the truth even when others don't want to hear it. But God's men will not enrich themselves at the expense of the people. God himself knew this would be a huge problem among his people. So he gives warning after warning after warning. The ugly sin of greed has infected many preachers and teachers. They've learned that they can make money with God's word. And they finally honed that money-making skill. If you're following along, we've been tracking with me here. You probably realize the most obvious example of that is in the prosperity gospel preachers. They're enriching themselves, at, implying that their people can enrich themselves if they'll follow their example. It's all about the money. But it can infect preachers and teachers of all denominations and non-denominational people. You know, anybody can, many, many can learn to entertain. They can learn to use comedy. They can learn to use effective storytelling. They can learn to use body language, facial gestures to impress and please people. And they may use enough scripture to sound spiritual, but their real goal is to make sure they keep the money coming in. Now, there's a warning in all of this for all of us. 
we may not be in that situation exactly, but we're all capable of shaming others for sins they commit and we see them committing while we are guilty of the same things or maybe worse, maybe if not the same things, and if not outwardly, in our hearts. So God's telling us here, we better be examining ourselves. Let's look at the specific sins he mentions here in verses 21 through 23. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So, of course, some may be tempted to actually steal money, just steal money and feel like it's okay. They, they justify, say, well, I deserve this. You know, I'm, I'm God's man. <laughs> but there are many churches out there, they don't even have a finance committee. They don't have a written budget. Or if, if they have one, it's just a sham. And they trust their pastor to use the money wisely without any accountability. That's very stupid and very dangerous. And I know that some men in those situations might prove to be totally trustworthy. They know they're going to give an account to God. So they're, they're very careful about it. But in those cases, they're always going to make themselves accountable to others. Many men are easily able to rationalize what's really theft. It can be a huge temptation. But of course, stealing can be more than just money. <laughs> I mean, there are pastors who simply buy books of sermons and then preach someone else's sermons as if they were their own sermons. That's a, that's a kind of stealing, too. In fact, there was a major scandal involving the immediate past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ed Litton, involving that very kind of stealing. Some pastors may find creative ways to steal from what rightfully belongs to the government, too, by way of avoiding taxes. I once heard a pastor say, I fear the IRS more than I fear God. A pastor, I heard him say that. I was in the room with him. I heard him with my own ears. It's amazing, isn't it? In chapter 3, Paul's going to quote from the 36th Psalm, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And some people who are teaching God's word and preaching God's word have lost their fear of God. It's very dangerous. We've already looked at the adultery issue before, but we might be shocked to know how many preachers and teachers of God's word, how many of God's kids in general are addicted to porn today. So easy for that to happen in our day. It's, it's everywhere. We know that. It's easy to find it. It's easy to, to look at it. It's easy to rationalize it. We became members of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas in 1989. And the man who had just resigned as pastor of that church just before we joined it was Billy Weber. He had to resign because it came to light that he had learned and, and developed a skill in seducing women. And it came to light that he had to seduce several beautiful women. I think they were all blondes in the church, committed adultery with them. The part about robbing temples here that Paul talks about, that, that may sound a little confusing, but I have read that it was common for Jewish people who knew that the many, many pagan temples are all around them and all over the Roman Empire, of course, they, they were covered with these pagan temples. Uh, they knew that that stuff was all dedicated to false gods and idols, and so they kind of rationalized and justified that since the valuables in those pagan temples were dedicated to false gods, that it was okay to simply take them, <laughs> to walk away with them. And of course, it's stealing, even if it's a pagan temple. It's wrong. <laughs> so it warns them, you're boasting about having and teaching God's law. But at the same time, you're breaking God's law in all kinds of ways. And you're not repentant. I mean, we all mess up, but we must have a repentant spirit if we're God's people. Just because we know the truth, just because we teach the truth, 
doesn't mean we're always living by the truth. Verse 24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, even unbelievers knew that what these people, they were calling themselves God's people, what they were doing was bad. They knew it was wrong. They, they knew it was sinful. So when the sin of Christian teachers and preachers comes to light, unbelievers love to know about it. They love to talk about it. And they'll say, these guys are all fake. What kind of God are they serving? You know, if his servants can do that kind of stuff, it must not be much of a God. And they blasphemed God because of God's so-called people who were not living righteous lives. They were not living for God. It was approach to God's name. Now, I think maybe to keep this balanced, we need to say, yes, there are men then and today who sin like King David and who genuinely repent like King David. Still very sad. It brings reproach to God. But certainly God forgives all kinds of sin when men genuinely repent and God knows their hearts and God will use them just like he used King David. Verses 25 through 29 have to do with circumcision. As part of what we sometimes call the holiness code, God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their boy babies on the eighth day after their birth. And if Gentile men wanted to become Jews, they had to go through physical circumcision. <laughs> so if you're a grown man and you're thinking about becoming a Jew, you're going to be very serious about your commitment to God before you become a Jew. Not, not likely to have many converts for trivial reasons. <laughs> but it was a source of great pride for the Jews. It set them apart. Of course, that's why God commanded them to do it. He wanted them to be set apart from other people. To use the Bible word, he wanted them to be holy. That's what holy means, set apart. But the physical act of circumcision was also meant to point to a vastly more important spiritual truth. And God made that clear from the very beginning. This is not something that was added later. Spiritually speaking, our hearts need to be circumcised. God clarified this in the original law that all the Israelites knew and respected. So he, he was teaching them very clearly this physical circumcision is pointing to something far more significant. Look at this. This is in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, of your heart. Be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here's another verse from Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. There it is again. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. He taught them that from the beginning. Look what he says through Jeremiah the prophet. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So Paul says here in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, 
but from God. You hear what God's saying here? He's saying, I intend for you to have a very sensitive heart. I intend for you to have a heart that will respond quickly when I convict you of sin. But you're born with an inward resistance to me. And you need to let me cut away that insensitive layer of your spiritual heart so that you can respond to me. That's how we get saved. When we were lost, we were not sensitive to our own sin. It didn't bother us that much. If we got in trouble, we might kind of have some regrets, but we weren't sensitive. But somehow God got through to us and he granted us faith and he granted us repentance. And he did spiritual surgery on our hearts to make them sensitive to him. And even though God had made that very truth very clear in the Old Testament through Moses and Deuteronomy and through the prophets, these leaders that Paul's referring to here didn't seem to have a clue. They were entirely focused on the external physical circumcision. Paul even goes so far as to say, you're not even a real Jew if you don't get this. He's basically saying, I don't care whether you're a descendant of Abraham or not. I don't care whether you have physical circumcision or not. Look at verse 28 and 29 again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul wants to make sure his readers know that the true Israelite is the man or woman of faith, not just biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look what he says in Romans chapter 9. We'll get to this someday, maybe. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. He's saying it very clear, isn't he? Jesus said something similar. They answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. <laughs> now, maybe the closest we can come today to understanding this spiritual analogy would be to think about baptism. We know the Bible commands those of us who are trusting Jesus to experience the beautiful symbol of water baptism. But water baptism doesn't save us any more than physical circumcision saved them. Baptism is a beautiful picture. It pictures death, burial, and resurrection. It pictures the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. It also pictures the fact that one of these days, these bodies of ours are going to wear out. We're going to experience physical death. We're going to be buried. And when Jesus comes back, we're going to be raised from the dead. It pictures that. But most importantly of all, it pictures a spiritual reality, something that's happened to us spiritually. It pictures our death and burial to an old way of life, and it pictures our resurrection to a new way of life. Paul gets into detail with this in Romans chapter 6, and maybe someday we'll get there too, and, and we'll work through this in more detail. But, but keep in mind, I want, to, I want to look at it just for a minute. God's not talking about water baptism here in Romans 6. We may think he is. It may sound like he is. But water baptism actually pictures what he's talking about here, the real baptism, the spiritual baptism. Keep in mind, the Greek word baptizo simply means to plunge into or to dip into or to immerse. And when we became Christians, we were immersed into Jesus Christ. And now we identify with his death, with his burial, 
and with his resurrection. So let's read this in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, not water, into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. A better translation would be that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Guys, that's an awesome passage of scripture. It's going to be exciting when we finally get to Romans chapter 6 to look at it in some detail. But it's, I'm telling you, it's worth memorizing. And God commands us to picture this baptism into Jesus with water baptism. However, having said that, there are people who focus so much on water baptism that they lose its real meaning. And there are people who think surely they're okay because they've been baptized in water. Just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a lady I met at Walmart. I asked if she attended a church anywhere, and she said, yes, I do. And she told me which church it was. It wasn't our church. And as we talked, she talked almost exclusively about baptism. She told me about her baptism. She told me about her children's baptism. She told me about her grandchildren's baptism. And I kept trying to gently help her understand, well, yes, baptism is beautiful and wonderful, but, but it's all really about our relationship with Jesus. But even after I said that, she just kept coming back to baptism. It was really fascinating. She was fixated on water baptism. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't saved. I wasn't, I'm not saying she wasn't trusting Jesus. She just didn't verbalize it very well, didn't communicate it very well. Her focus seemed to be only on baptism. But whatever her personal situation was, it's certainly possible for people today to put the same confidence in water baptism that the ancient Jews often place in physical circumcision. But without the spiritual reality that both of these things point to, they're just empty. They're meaningless. They're powerless. They're symbols of something far deeper and far more important. You could substitute other things for baptism. Some people uh, look to their church membership uh, to ensure that they're saved. And some people look to their parents and their family life or maybe even their country, America, and they think that means I'm a Christian. And we miss the whole point. We can. We, we've got to be alert to God's real truth in his word. Well, Paul's not finished. He's going to continue this line of thinking in chapter 3, and Lord willing, we'll pick it up there next time. Hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this powerful passage of Scripture. And Lord, we do want to be faithful sharers of your truth with others. We want to have the opportunity and take every opportunity you give us to talk to others about Jesus, and about your word and your truth. But Lord, as you give us those opportunities, please help us always, always, always to be examining ourselves constantly. 
Lord, we know how easy it is. We've seen it happen so many times, and you warned us so many times in your word how easy it is to suddenly or slowly, maybe, I don't know, but, but somehow get to the point where we're not listening to what we're saying and we're preaching to others, but we're not listening ourselves. Lord, help us to keep teachable spirits. Please help us to see our blind spots. In my case, use Vicky. Use our Christian brothers and sisters around us to help us see our blind spots. Help us to stay teachable, Lord, and help us to listen to the word we're teaching ourselves. And then, Father, help us to realize that there are lots of symbols that you've given, whether it's circumcision or baptism or other things that people can, can, can put too much of an emphasis on. Lord, we thank you for these beautiful pictures, but help us never to get so focused on the picture and the symbol that we forget the reality. Thank you that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been united with him in his death and burial and resurrection so we can walk in newness of life with Jesus. Help us, Lord, to understand that deeply and to teach that clearly. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for being an awesome father. Thank you most of all for Jesus who died for us so that we could have this relationship with you. We pray in his name. Amen.